you for this morning. We thank you that we're alive, that we breathe air, oxygen, that you've blessed us today with your presence. And your presence is with us always, morning, afternoon, evening, uh, winter, summer, fall, spring. It doesn't matter. You are with us in the, in the lightest times of life and the darkest. And we know that you're with us this morning and you will encourage us by the work of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so this morning, this Sunday, is the before the holiday period that, is, that kicks off the six over six time of year. You know what that is, the six over six? Six pounds over six weeks. That's what's happening next. Yeah. And, and so, it's funny because you talk to a lot of people like, yo, what, what, how was your day? Great. Had a holiday party. Next day, how was your day? Great. My wife's a teacher. It's like they're Jewish and it's Hanukkah every day. It's like there's a party every single day. Someone's bringing something to eat. But, but that's the season we're in. But it all kicks off with Thanksgiving. Right, this, in, this incredible holiday that we come alive to. And we have some really great things about Thanksgiving. And we have, can we put those weird looking? If you put that on your table and expect, can you put the other one up there? I mean, like, <laughs> some people are into gourds. If you have a, a gourd, it looks like it's like got smallpox or something like that. That, that doesn't help people's appetite at the table with Thanksgiving, right? Heads up. That, that's friend to friend, brother to brother. Sis, well, I'm not a sister, but I got a high voice like one, right? But so we love Thanksgiving, even though a lot of historians think that actual Thanksgiving might not have even happened. It, it, there was like two little instances in recorded history where possibly Possibly the, the pilgrims and the Native Americans got together and possibly broke bread. Now, but here's one fact we know about the historicity of Thanksgiving. There was no turkey on Thanksgiving. They didn't serve turkey. Do you know why? Because both Native Americans and pilgrims know there are tons of other meats that don't taste like firewood. Like I, I, turkey and Thanksgiving is like, I just can't handle it. It's so dry and, and, and so... We love Thanksgiving. We, we like some of the traditions. Some of them we are made up. Some of them we kind of make ourselves, but we love it. And so this morning we're talking about, in thank you, we're talking about thanks and giving. Thanks and giving. I love the t- this time of the year. I love to spend time with my family, my extended family. My mom raised a single mom, did an incredible job, and, and we all get to gather and spend time together. We love to eat. Lots of pie. Lots of pie. <laughs> and and it, hopefully, though, this year, it hasn't happened in a while, but, but hopefully lots of pumpkin pie with, with no orange zest in it. So, so let me just hear a quick story. A few, this guy doesn't know, but he just knows where it's going. A few years back, my mom, who's an amazing cook and baker, like amazing, she makes the best pies. Her blueberry cream pie blows Brymere out of the water. It is my wife's favorite pie. And a few years back, she thought she would, she would try to spread her wings and try something new. So, so, so quick, quick, word of advice. If, if you're a 70-year-old Italian woman who's been cooking since you were in a diaper, um, you should not be trying anything new and inventive in the kitchen, right? Don't spread your wings and fly. If it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. You're Italian, 
Stick to your amazing skill set. And so my mom, she decided she was going to put orange zest in all of the pumpkin pies. Now, she, she didn't tell us. She kept it a little cute secret, and, and, and she wanted us to be surprised. And we were surprised. It, it was surprise mixed with horror, <laughs> anger, and rage. Because she just did not do one of the pumpkin pies. It's like, here, try this. All four of the pumpkin pies had orange zest in them. And, and the reaction from me, the siblings, the grandkids, you would think we just found out she had in the past like a torrid love affair with Jeffrey Dahmer. Because the, the intensity of the reaction was that fierce. And let's just say as kids, everyone was doing a lot of repenting and asking for forgiveness after that. And so regardless of Thanksgiving traditions or even um, what we celebrate in each family or even historically what is true or not true of Thanksgiving, right, the great thing about this morning as Christians is we, we just need two, th two things. We need, we need Jesus and we need the Word. Jesus and the Word. And so, as I said, this morning's message is titled, Thanks and Given. Thanks and Given. You know, if you're a Buddhist to reach heaven or nirvana, you have to follow an eightfold path. One of those things, it requires knowing or understanding the universe. I'm still trying to figure out how my 13-year-old son knows more than me about everything. So understanding the universe, no. And the, the eightfold path is you, you got to live in right manner, speak in right manner, act in right manner. And, and if you master those, you get heaven. It sounds like an a episode of Squid Games or Hunger Games or whatever. It's just, that's complicated and hard. If you're Muslim, right, they, they, their deeds are weighed. So you are, they are working to make sure that everything they do, they listen to Muhammad, their prophet, they follow everything they do, and they add in pilgrimages and fasts, anything they can do to tip the scales. And obviously, we know the ultimate a scale tipper in, in Islam is martyrdom, taking of life. And the list goes on in regards to religions of the world. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer, Chronicles of, of Narnia, he was a professor, and one day one of his atheist friends who was a professor said he thought he was going to stump him. So his friend, the fellow professor, is in a classroom, and on the, all the, the chalkboards of the classroom begins to write all the world religions, all of them, and then puts Christianity over here and just kind of like interconnects them. And then C.S. Lewis walks into the room, and he's looking at the chalkboards, and his friend says, I see nothing at all different between these world religions and Christianity, nothing. They just all look the same, like a common thread just works through all of them, tying them all together. They're essentially all the same thing, no matter which way you go, front to back, but it doesn't matter. And C.S. Lewis, brilliant man, looks at the chalkboard, and gives one word, grace, and then turns around and walks out of the room. 
That's what we're talking about this morning. Grace-fueled thanks. Grace-fueled thanks. That's our first point. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It's the gift of God. I don't know if we'll ever understand the vastness of it, but because we're used to working for everything. It's in our DNA. Great cities are built by people who build them. They work. Kids are raised by parents who, who work. And then God says, I'm going to love you and save you and promise you everything from me by grace. That means even when you're doing stuff you shouldn't be doing, God says, my grace toward you is the same. My love toward you is the same. The promises in the Bible are the same. One of the things that has most shifted my understanding of grace is something I call thief theology. Thief theology. Let, let's read Luke 23, 32 through 43. Two other men, and this is Jesus being crucified, two other men, both criminals, were let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood there watching, and the, the rulers sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for what we're getting, for what our deeds deserve. This man's done nothing wrong. And then the thief says, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I have built, or God has built my whole understanding of grace out of this. It is not by accident that the very first person to enter heaven under the new covenant of, of grace is a man nailed to a cross. All right, so the, the Old Covenant, Old Testament, God says, if you do all of this perfectly, I will fulfill all my promises for you, I will bring you peace, and you will get heaven. That's the Old Covenant. It fully requires 100% not only effort by us, but success. And the New Covenant of grace, God says, I'm going to send my son Jesus. He's going to do all the work 100% perfectly, and then I'm just going to, by grace, give you promises and the life and heaven and peace. And so to set the tone of this, who does God use just to show how, how wild and lavish his grace is? The, the very first recipient of grace under the new covenant is a man, a man who could not do one good deed, nailed to a cross. He couldn't get down and feed his neighbor. He was nailed to a cross. He couldn't 
get dressed up on Sunday and come to church and sing worship songs. He's, he's nailed to a cross. And God says, let me show you how wild my grace is. Let me, let me set the precedent here. You can't do anything to get it. Thief theology. I'm just going to pour it out. Even on your bad days. And we think bad days, man, like bad days, I eat a bad day like a protein bar. Give me, it's a bad day. Who's had bad weeks, months, years, day, day? That's a joke. I've gone stretches of time, and I go stretches of time in, in, in what I feel is the pressure of life or even my lack of growing in Christian maturity. People are like, well, I'm just crawling as a Christian. Crawling implies forward movement. I feel like I'm going backwards sometimes, sometimes for months. And God says, because of grace, I'm still here for you. My promises still apply to you. I still love you in the bad, not just day, weeks, months, years. I heard an incredible story recently. It just was, it just, I loved it. It just kind of it didn't just warm my heart. It just keep amplifying the effect of grace. There was a Christian family. They decided to adopt a, a, a young girl, eight years old, Ashley. They already had three kids, but they wanted to, by showing Christ, they wanted to bring someone into the home and love on them. And so they, they adopted Ashley, who's eight. Now, Ashley had been adopted before. She, so she had her birth family, then she was adopted and the family adopted her when she was five. What happened was they adopted her, and, and Ashley was just a handful. She was, she was, in their words, she was a terror. She was just nonstop. She would go after and attack the siblings. She was just out of control. And that first family that adopted her, every year they would go to Disney World, but Ashley was so wild, they couldn't bring her to Disney World with them. So they would leave Ashley with a relative behind, then they would go to Disney World, and then they would come back to Disney, back home and try to not talk about Disney World. But Ashley knew they were at Disney World. She saw the pictures. They'd bring it up sometimes, and it just, it crushed this little girl. And after a few years, three years, this family, this girl was such a handful, this family, their biological children started to have to get counseling because they were all kind of falling apart having Ashley in the house. And so this family puts Ashley up for adoption again. And then this Christian family comes in, and they adopt Ashley. And, and, and as, as I read the story and you heard the story, you would hope that the new, this family comes in, they adopt her, and that she, her behavior changed. It didn't. She was still wild. She was still uncontrollable. And then, so what happened was that this dad who adopted her said, you know what, I know she's always wanted to go to Disney World. Next time I have a business trip down south, I'm going to take the whole family to Disney World. And he tells Ashley, and he tells the whole family, and you would think, okay, now Ashley's behavior might get better leading up to Disney World. The opposite happened. She was worse. She, she was outright rebellious on a level that, that exceeded what she was before. And it got so bad, about three days before they were to leave, she, she hurt one of the other kids. And the dad sits down with her, and he's like, Ashley, I love you, but you have to, you know, you're hurting other people. And her response is, so I guess you're not taking me to Disney World now, right? And the dad says, no, no, 
part of this family. You're part of this family. We're going to Disney World as a family. You're going. And so a couple of days later, they get in the car. They ride. They drive down. His words were, car ride from hell. <laughs> they get to Disney World. The day one, they're there. She's taken off. You know how Disney's got all those restricted areas? She found every one of them. And then later that night, the father had the continue. At nighttime, he'd pray with the kids. And so he tucks in his others and then gets to Ashley. And little eight-year-old, rebellious Ashley is now, she's shot. Remember, you know, kids at Disney World, it's like they're on crack. And then, night, and then like at nighttime, they're out. And she's laying in the bed subdued. And this is what she said. She said that she goes, Dad, I, got, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It was because I am yours. That's grace. That's grace. This is why, as Christians, we should be living a life of thanks. Grace-fueled thanks. The observable universe has a radius of like 46 billion light years. I don't even know what that is. And in that, there are 2 trillion galaxies. And in each galaxy, there are about 200 billion stars. And yet the psalmist says in Psalm 8.4, he says this, he goes, what is man that you are mindful of them and care for them? I mean, what, who am I that you... I mean, you love us, and not just love us, but constantly pursue good for us, independent of how we do. And I know it's easy oftentimes to lose that perspective, and we begin to, you know, we look at our life, and our life isn't where we expect it to be. No one, no one in fourth grade when asked, what's your life going to be like when you're middle age? And no one responds, bald, divorced and working in a cubicle, a job I hate. And if you responded like that in fourth grade, you probably needed therapy. <laughs> but you might be bald and middle-aged and divorced and in a job you hate. But you're God's. And he doesn't wait in the morning with anxious anticipation for the stars to roll out of bed. He waits for you. And he doesn't wait for us because we're doing so great. He waits for us because he loves us. We don't need leverage with God. You, you can't force God's hand. He created everything. Anyone ever play the, the leverage game with your spouse? Liars. So, so a while back, this is actually in February. I have the, <clears throat> the voice note to prove it. What I'm going to tell you, do not replicate Men, please. So a while back, like it, last winter, we were talking, and so, you know, sometimes I just, you know what it is, like sometimes you're on a, you're on a roll, you're on a streak. Like I was just, I was, I was doing the extra dishes and this and that, and, and, and my wife were talking, and she, I'm like, I'm perfect. She goes, you're not perfect. Only Jesus is perfect, but you're a 98 percenter. Now, I dropped out of high school, so someone tells me I got a 98. That's like... That's pretty amazing. I'm like 98. I'm like, oh my gosh. Jesus is 100. I'm like two points away from Jesus. 
So this is the running joke for a while that I, I'm a 98 percenter. So I'm like, she's she, she getting a little upset with me. I'm like, I'm a 98 percenter. <laughs> so one day she's in the kitchen, and she, it's a perfect opportunity because I know my wife. I can read her well. She's in a really good mood, but she's distracted. That's the combination, guys. Good mood, but she's not fully focused on what you're listening to. So I hit record on my phone on the voice notes. And I begin to pepper her. So how good am I? Am I a 98%er? She's like, you're a 98%er? I'm like, I'm good. She, I'm really good, right? She goes, yeah, you're really good. I'm like, really incredible husband? She's like, really, really incredible husband. I'm like, and I kept going for like a good 90 seconds. Stopped it. Now I thought that that would aid me in times of distress. So when I was, when I was a two percenter, 98.2, which we all know it's, but anyway, I said, let me hit play to remind her of my 98% abilities. <laughs> my, my relationship with breathing that day almost ceased. It does, it did, it does, it, the, re, the reaction, I thought I'd maybe at least get a giggle. No. <laughs> Death stare silent treatment, and then fear for my life. That was pretty much the order it went. But that's leverage. And we, we want to leverage people. We want to leverage God. But grace is the end of leverage. This is, this is the thing we have to be so, so thankful. When I pray in the morning, when you pray in the morning or afternoon or evening, or just shoot up a little prayer. Your prayer is not just heard. God is working on your behalf in the prayer. Why? Because you read your Bible this morning? No. Grace. And so when we pray, before we begin to pray, a lot of times we're like, all right, I I treated my spouse well. Uh, I read the Bible, and now I can enter into prayer. No. He's not answering the prayer against those things. He answers our prayers. He, He loves us. He fulfills all his promises in our life. By grace. So grace leads us to constantly being thankful. Thanks. It also leads us to give. Giving. 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. The love of Christ, his grace, moves us. See the order? Grace, love, compels. Now I move. Grace, love, compels. It's the grace of God that moves us to give. That's why as Christians, when we understand grace, our our given is the purest given on the planet. Yes, I'm bragging on Christianity. Christianity, when they give, is the purest form of giving. Because everyone gives. Listen, Muslims give. Buddhists give. They help people in need. They see a neighbor hungry, and they also give them food. But what drives the giving? There's a story told of a king and he had this vast kingdom, and this king really loved being involved with the subjects 
lives. So he would go out, he would, he would see people work, he would, he would engage them, and then, and then a couple times a year he would, he would open up the throne room and, at the castle, and he would invite people from his areas to come in and either present requests or, or settle kind of disputes or just even not honor him. He just opened it up. It was like, a, like an open house. And so he opens up the throne room, and there's a guy in line. He's waiting in line. He's got a, he's got a tomato in his hand. He's a farmer. He's got a tomato. Single tomato, above average size tomato. And he, he gets up in line. He gets in his turn before the king. And the king says, what can I do for you? And the poor farmer says, king, uh, you've been good to us. You're kind. You're compassionate. This is the largest tomato I've ever grown. And I, I offer it to you as a, a token of honor. Now, it's, it's literally an above-average-sized tomato. And the king looks at him, and the king pauses and says, I, I don't want your tomato. And there's a hush over the throne room. And everyone's like, man, this guy just completely got burned. And the king says, you take the tomato. You enjoy it. But you're not just going to leave here with a tomato. I'm going to give you... 20 acres of land so you can continue to farm and flourish. And, 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 and the farmer was blown away. He went there to honor the king, and he left with more than he came for. People were shocked. And so one of the noblemen in the court starts saying, man, this guy brought a crummy tomato, and the king offered him 20 acres of land. So the nobleman says, I know what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to I'm going I'm to travel to Arabia. I'm going to purchase the most expensive Arabian stallion I can find. I'm going to bring it back here. I'm going to present it to the king, and he's going to be so blown away, he's going to offer me a third of his kingdom. So he, he travels. He's gone for months. He spends the most part of his fortune. He, two people in his party die because the, the trip is so dangerous. He, he comes across. He finds the most expensive Arabian stallion he can get, and he begins the journey back. And finally, after returning, he gets the opportunity to present to the king, right? Same setup as before. Loads of people, all in the throne room, and this noble man comes in with this insanely beautiful midnight black Arabian stallion, and he presents it to the king. My king, you are kind and powerful. I traveled far and wide, spent most of my money Two of my traveling companions died in pursuit of bringing you this prize stallion. And the king pauses. But he doesn't just pause. He gets down off his throne. And, and he walks toward the nobleman. And he grabs the reins of the horse and says, thank you. And walks away with the horse. <laughs> and the nobleman, his, his heart sinks. He feels panic set in. And he yells, sire. Lord, King, um, uh, are, you, are you forgetting something? And, and the king says, excuse me? And the nobleman says, I saw, I saw a poor farmer give you a tomato, and you gave him 20 acres of land. I, I've given you the most expensive horse in the world. I bankrupted myself to bring this home to you. I lost friends to bring this home to you. I don't understand your reaction. And the king looks at him and says, the farmer 
gave the tomato to me. You gave the horse to yourself. Do you feel the weight of that? This is why as Christians, when we grace-fueled grace, grace fueled given, right? This is why Christians are, are given the purest because you're not, you're not giving to get. Jesus has already freely given us everything. But that also means that you might find yourself in some situations where you, where you, you find yourself insanely giving of your time, your talents, and your money. Matthew 25, it's not going to be up here. When the Son of Man came in his glory, all the angels with him, he sits on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate the people one from another. Shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, goats on his left. King will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a, a stranger, see you a stranger, invite you in or needing clothes and, and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison go to visit you? The king replied, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I I heard a pastor once put this so brilliantly. He goes, this is true giving. He goes, we look at it and say, like, oh, they weren't thinking they were serving Jesus. This guy's take was this. He goes, their their good deeds were so naturally not self-orchestrated. Everything they good they did, they didn't have to put in a box and say, I did this. It just was a natural overflow. I heard a story of a a Jewish man named Benjamin, and he was Jewish, and his whole family was Jewish, and Jewish, over 600 laws in the Old Testament. You're Jewish, you follow those. And they, Jewish people, tie 10% as well. And then Benjamin became a Christian. And his wife's noticing now, like, well, he would go to synagogue, and once in a while he would go and volunteer here, and now he's spending three hours on a Wednesday afternoon at the food pantry at this Christian church, and where he used to give 10% on the dot. Now he's throwing extra money in to the church, and she's like, I don't understand, Benjamin. I don't understand. You became a Christian because you talked to me so much about the grace of God and his goodness, and you're giving more now than you did when you were under Judaism. And he said, exactly. Do you know why? I don't have to give it. Religion is robbery. If I put a gun to your head and say, give me your money, what are you going to do? You're going to give me your money. If Jesus says, you don't have to give me anything, I've done it all. The love of Christ compels me. I'm moved. I don't have to give you anything. I don't have to give a dollar to anyone for you to love me. I want to give. Now I want to give. Now I'm motivated to give. Now I'm moved to give. Now I'm moved to take action. Grace-driven giving. You see the difference? I'm not keeping a scorecard. And all of a sudden, I'm freed up from the shackles of, I'm giving so God will be happy with me. No. I'm giving because God is happy with me, regardless of what I give. And you know what that makes me want to do? Give more. 
give more of my time, more of my talents, and more of my treasures. We are in a time, we, we often talk about this, we are in a time where everybody counts everything. Social media posts, likes, everything is counted. Everything. The gospel, God's not counting anything. That's what should move us to give extravagantly. If his grace is lavish, and I get that, all of a sudden I'm compelled to say, you're not trying to, you're not putting a gun to my face. You've freed me. You've liberated me. The love of Christ compels me to give. Grace-driven giving. That's why Christianity, when we give, is the purest form of giving in the world. Because every other religious anything, even atheism, atheists give so they can prove to religious people that they're better people. So you're giving to get. I don't have to prove anything. We don't have to prove anything. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I have nothing to prove. So you know what that means now? We can give purely and extravagantly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that we are freed by your grace. I just, I just pray that we would get this and that as we understand the depth of this, that we would begin to lavishly give. Not to get, we've been given everything. Thanks and given, all fueled by grace, all fueled by your love, all filled by, fueled by the finished work of Jesus Christ. I thank you for this church. I thank you for their generosity. I thank you for their hearts to serve and to love. And we just pray that that would, that would continue to grow exponentially in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.